0: from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it?
1: Welcome to Politics, Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Well, firstly, our co-host, our Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, worldwide lecturer, and socially distant, zoomed-in authority of everything historical and constitutional, Professor Ed Larson. How you doing, Ed? Hello, nice to be with you and Jane, but especially wonderful to see Paul. Okay, and also zooming in, we've got Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who's represented U.S. interests to high-level government officials all over the world, and she's been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. And in full disclosure, she's also president of the local Malibu Democratic Club. Jane, it's nice to remotely see you again, too.
2: It's always a pleasure, a delight, and an honor to be here.
1: And Paul Rosenzweig. We are honored to have the founder of the Homeland Security Consulting company Red Branch Consulting and Senior Advisor to the Chertoff Group. He was the first Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy in the Department of Homeland Security. He's a consistent contributor to The Atlantic, and he's frequently the authority on CNN. And in full disclosure, Paul considers himself a Republican. Welcome, Paul.
3: Well, not anymore. I actually changed my political affiliation a while ago. I'm now officially an independent. But I think it's fair to say I consider myself a conservative still.
1: Paul, you're going to immediately know where I'm going with this, but I'm going to ask Ed, our historian, to talk to us a little bit about when have federal troops been used and deployed inside the United States for the purposes of enforcing local laws?
0: Not very often. What is much more common is the use of federal troops to domestically enforce federal law. That's the much more common, all the way back to George Washington leading a militia of thousands of men to enforce the federal tax laws in Pennsylvania in the so-called Whiskey Rebellion. And then you can just go right forward. I mean, Colonel Robert E. Lee enforced Protection of Harper's Ferry, a federal institution, from the attacks of John Brown. During Reconstruction, federal troops were all over the South enforcing. Federal civil rights laws to protect African Americans, or the Pullman strike in the Gilded Era. There are several railroad strikes where federal troops were used in the Depression Era. Federal troops were used to monitor the veterans' marshes. and then of course Eisenhower famously used the federal troops to enforce court-ordered desegregation. So you have a awful lot of examples. And once the federal troops are there, ostensibly and primarily for to enforce federal law, they have. have a general police presence that will enforce state law as well, therefore local law and state law. The other example that you do have historically, is when a governor will call upon the federal government to send in troops, such as in you know various riots, massive riots that occurred in the mid-1960s, whether it be Los Angeles or Detroit, you had governors or local officials calling for help to send in federal troops. So really, the examples you have are using federal troops domestically to enforce federal law. And that, of course, was a claim in Portland recently, because what they kept saying is we're here to protect the federal courthouse. And the question is, how far beyond did those troops go? And then you have the alternative examples, such as the L.A. riots, of sending in federal troops at the request of the local
1: officials or the governor, which they signed off and indeed asked for it. Devil's in the details. So Paul, has there been circumstances where these kind of troops were deployed by the federal government, actually, in spite of the local governors not wanting those troops to appear?
3: I'm going to start with a gentle disagreement with the phrase, I wouldn't call them troops right? Because none of these were National Guard troops of the sort that Ed's history was was accurately describing, either federal troops or National Guardsmen who'd been federalized. So who are these guys? These guys were law enforcement officers who exercised federal law enforcement authority, the most militarized of which, the ones you saw in the in the camouflage with, with the night goggles and the really heavy armaments, were a group known as BORTAC. BORTAC stands for Border Tactical Unit. The Border Tactical Unit was created probably 15, 20 years ago in response to the increasingly dangerous arms being used by drug cartels on the southwest border. The typical Border Patrol agent has a revolver, maybe a rifle, and he was turning out to be facing a bunch of cartel guys with AK-47s, machine guns. He was outgunned. So Bortac was essentially a quasi-militarized law enforcement agency that was created for the very purpose of being armed to equate themselves to the drug cartels. Their training was for low-grade combat that was not quite war, but was a lot more than arresting uh, druggies on the border. It certainly was never any training for dealing with protesters who are exercising their rights to protest and or engaging in illegal civil disobedience involving threats to federal property. That was not part of their training. Almost all of the people that they interacted with were non-Americans. We could talk a long time about the difference in the legal rights of non-Americans and Americans, but suffice it to say that non-Americans illegally entering the United States have a lot less due process protection
1: broadly speaking. Didn't seem like the protesters in Portland had a whole lot of civil rights protection. Uh, They were held for quite a while in a parking lot without having their rights handed to them.
3: That's exactly right. The BORTAC units that we saw on video were not very experienced in operating in situations where the threats to them were less, not armed with machine guns, right? And where the people they were interacting with were people who had a who brought with them a bucket of rights first amendment rights mostly that had some value here i mean that's not to defend them there were all, all of them there were lots of people in portland who were you know throwing molotov cocktails and but by all reports those were a minority
1: within the larger groups so why why was this group chosen for this task of protecting the federal properties in portland
2: i think that Generally, it's fairly clear that Trump tried to use the military in Washington to put down protests and the military rebelled as much as military can rebel and said, that's not our job and we won't do it. As you know, he was strongly rebuked and paid a political price. So he wanted to essentially try to do the same thing. And the Department of Homeland Security, if I'm correct, has more law enforcement resources at its disposal than any other agency. And he's got a lot more power over that, particularly if he has an appointee who's sympathetic to them. So, But basically, he couldn't use the military, so he grabbed these law enforcement officers to do the same thing.
1: But can the federal government deploy troops to a place where the local governors don't want the help?
0: Well, historically, they certainly can and have when it's the defense and protection of federal law, not domestic law, but federal law. And so when you have federal law, I mean, the Southern governors didn't want troops there in Reconstruction, but they were defending federal law. Certainly, George Wallace didn't want the troops defending the desegregation of the University of Alabama, or the governor of Arkansas didn't want Eisenhower to send federalized National Guard in to desegregate Little Rock schools. But since it was federal law, or in in some of those cases, federal court orders, the federal government has the power to do it. And so that raised the question first that was raised of, okay, were they defending federal property? There's
1: a law saying the federal government can defend federal property. Sounds like Paul is saying that they might have been, but they they went much farther than that while they were there. And I agree with Paul
0: on both of the points he was making on that. First, if they were pushing out far beyond the courthouse itself, to rough up people that weren't threatening the courthouse. And second, the types of troops they enforced. They were not army, absolutely. They were not technically federal troops or nationalized Oregon National Guard. But the Border Patrol has a long history that goes way back 100 years of being really rough at the border. And so you take those people who work out in the desert with a history of what we would view as questionable activities that only a rogue police department would engage in and then throw them into a setting which they weren't trained to do with equipment that was designed for other uses, as Paul describes it. You have a recipe for troubling activities.
1: But you know what? That's really interesting, Ed, because here we are, we're looking for a view from the middle. So I think what I'm hearing is it's reasonable to think that the federal government could want to protect federal property while people are tossing Molotov cocktails and shouldn't be. The problem could very well be just a management problem, not actually a conceptual problem, where maybe it's reasonable to protect federal property, but the management of a group of people who were likely Trump's only solution was very difficult and uh, resulted in a whole lot of video that we've all watched and over.
2: I do not believe it was legal to send federal law enforcement officers in to enforce state or local law. Yes, they have the right to protect federal property. But if I was the governor of Oregon, I would have ordered the federal troops out and I would have used my state troops over which I have authority. I would have surrounded the federal building and said, you take one step off of federal property. You've got a problem with us.
3: We actually game played that out, Jane, at a little tabletop I was doing with people. And the the obvious response is for President Trump to nationalize the Oregon National Guard, put them under his control and order them to disperse. And apparently there's no authority for a governor to refuse a nationalization order.
2: But I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the State National Guard, I'm talking about the State Highway Patrol. Ah,
3: well then, then we would have had a shootout at the O.K. Corral.
1: (laughs) But conceptually, if this is federal property, People shouldn't be throwing Molotov cocktail and try to destroy federal property. Perhaps the reasonableness of the response is greater than any of us feel is appropriate, but a response could very well be appropriate.
3: That's fair. I mean, had President Trump brought in other members of the Federal Protective Service, which is the group that is responsible for protecting federal property, had he brought them in from Nashville or... Atlanta or Big Sky, Montana, probably they would have responded better. They would have not pushed their perimeter out. They would not have engaged in activity that seemed to be purporting to enforce state and local law, which is beyond their their remit. And they probably wouldn't have wound up serially violating people's civil rights. I think this is yet another example of the biggest paradigmatic problem that Trump has shown a light on which is to say that all of the structures of American law involve broad rules and executive discretion to ignore, violate, extend, modify those laws, whether it's uh, tariffs on steel or emergency funding to uh, build a, a military facility or moving people to defend federal property in Portland. The problem with all those is that we rely upon the good judgment and probity and discretion of the president to exercise that authority normally.
0: Historically, the agency that he would have picked on, if you go all the way back 150 years, it would have been the federal marshals. And the federal marshals are probably strong enough if sufficiently deployed from around the nation to defend the courthouse. They were who were used in bleeding Kansas, which was a sort of a state federal issue. I mean, they've been used for all these years. And let me just reinforce what Paul said. You can go back to the actual debates when they wrote the constitution in Philadelphia. And you had people like Benjamin Franklin and Governor Randolph of Virginia, who offered the original Virginia plan, and George Mason and the future vice president of the United States, Jerry from Massachusetts. And they all said, we've given too much arguable power to the president. Now, this will only work if your president has virtue and Republican virtue. And that's why Franklin went along. He made a famous last speech. He said, this can be abused. They had in mind somebody like a Patrick Henry or later on an Aaron Burr, who would have been a living example of overusing this possible power. There's this risk here of the checks and balances being disrupted by a president who pushes the limit of their power.
1: So, Paul, let's go back a little bit. When formed originally, specifically, what was the role of the Department of Homeland Security and how was it formed?
3: Uh, The Department of Homeland Security, quite obviously, was a response to the tragedy of 9-11. But more concretely, it was a response to the perceived lack of coordination of the government's anti-terrorism, counter-terrorism and border security efforts which were at that time distributed across a number of different agencies. Customs was in the Department of Treasury. Border Patrol was in the Department of Justice. Yeah, a lack of a coordination structure was a nightmare. And so the idea, which mostly grew out of the 9-11 Commission's review of what went wrong on September 11th, was to create a overarching superstructure of coordination that would bind all of these different things together in a way that would create a unity of effort and a locus for the focus of our counterterrorism efforts.
1: So that it was quickly assembled after nine eleven. No, not, not very quickly at all. It took
3: a couple of years before the department was actually created. The very first thing that happened was that President Bush created an Office of Homeland Security in the White House, which was intended to be a coordinating function, much like the National Security Council was intended to knit together the Department of Defense and the Department of State and all of our foreign and international engagements, including the International Trade Commission. I
1: I'm curious, Paul, why wasn't the FBI
3: involved in that group? In the Office of Homeland Security, it was initially. They had a major counterterrorism mission. And indeed, one of the reasons that the actual formation of the Department of Homeland Security was delayed was that many people thought that the FBI should move over to the new Office of Homeland Security. And there was, in typical Washington
1: parlance, a bureaucratic knife fight over that one with a lot of blood spilled on the floor. Uh, Jane, I think you had had a slightly different opinion of how the FBI and I don't know, did the CIA end up part of this thing?
2: I was in Washington at the time, and I recall everything that Paul is saying. He's basically right. There was bureaucratic fighting. You know, I, I always believe in quality government and efficient government. And I have never been convinced the Department of Homeland Security was an effective and good idea to solve the problems. Paul is right. The main problem with 9-11 was the failure of particularly our various agencies, FBI, state, CIA, DIA, to share effectively certain information, all of which they had. But sometimes they guarded it jealously and sometimes it was just not effective communication
1: so Paul let me ask you before the formation of Homeland Security which sounds like it was a, a difficult coordination job were some of these agencies in possession of knowledge that could have saved us from 911 the 911 Commission identified
3: a barrier between the law enforcement community and and the intelligence community that it says did contribute to missing the blinking red signals. The lights were flashing red was, was the title of one of the chapters of the 9-11 Commission Report. There were famously a number of FBI agents, one named Colleen Rowley, and another whose name escapes me at the moment, who wrote about how if they'd only known X, they would have been able to do Y, and that would have worked out much better. One involved uh, Zacharias Massawi, who was the fellow who took only takeoff lessons and not landing lessons, which ought to have been a cue to somebody. All of that was part and parcel of an effort to create DHS and also some other structures. For example, the National Counterterrorism Center is an all-threats, all-information center that was built out in Virginia now, where they take streams from DIA and CIA and
1: NSA and DHS, and they try and merge it all together. How has the Department of Homeland Security changed in the last 20 years?
3: So the first five years, I would say, from when President Bush started it to the end of the Bush administration in '09, was basically foundation building. And then the Obama administration began to be able to take advantage of some of the synergies and take this newly created car out for a little bit of a ride, for example. One good example of that was that they did a very good job in coordinating cybersecurity issues across the government in ways that might not have been as successful if DHS hadn't existed. And then in the last four years... It's all about immigration enforcement and not even about customs, not, not really about cyber, very little about emergency management and response, not a lot about aviation security, certainly not about pandemic planning. And so what we've seen in the last four years, I would say, is a regression of the department back from its all threats perspective, which is how we used to think of it, to one that is much more narrowly focused exclusively on a single threat stream, the immigration threat stream. It's a product of President Trump's
1: unique focus on that as a critical issue. Well, interesting. That noted. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with Paul Rosenzweig in just a minute.
0: On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co Media.
1: So we're back with Paul Rosenzweig talking Homeland Security. You know, I noticed that during your tenure at Homeland Security, a couple of your focuses were very interesting to me, one of which was international rules for data protection. Is that another term for cybersecurity? Actually, no. Rules for international data protection were rules about when we,
3: as the U.S. government, could or should share information with, say, our partners in Europe, or when Europeans would share information with us, more limitedly with other nations like Brazil or India.
1: What type of information?
3: Well, the, the main locus of that information at the time was large scale data sets about things like who's moving money around and who's traveling. It turns out that the best ways to kind of get a handle on terrorist activity are through following their communications, which was the NSA's job, following their money movement, which was Treasury's job, and following their travel, which was DHS's job. So strategically, our goal was to get better insight into how terrorists were moving around the globe, including through Europe. The problem with that is that in order to get insight into terrorist movement, you have to collect information about the movement of everybody,
1: right? Help me understand why, why you would need to track everybody's movement in order to track certain targets that you've identified as uh, potentially dangerous. First
3: off, Often we don't identify them until after they've traveled. So if we don't have a historic record of who's entered the United States in the last six months, say, I can't look back and say, oh, I just found out that Muhammad Atta, who is a terrorist, and he may have arrived sometime in the last six months. That's the first bit of it. But the other more innovative and also intrusive aspect of it was, that we wanted to build a system that would build connections between people. So, for example, if we knew that Muhammad Atta was a terrorist, we would also want to know something about the person who made a reservation with the same travel agency on the same day as Muhammad Atta.
1: So, one of the things that I remember back then, because two decades ago doesn't seem like that far for me anymore, we were concerned that the tools used to track potential terrorists' targets. Could also be used to track, oh, I don't know, the other political party, for example.
3: That's exactly what the problem was with the collection in the first instance. That the, I mean, the department took the view that that the terrorist threat was sufficiently real and that risk was small. So we were urging that we go forward with it. Your concern was very real because I could just as readily say, let's track Jane because she's the head of the Democrat Party in Malibu and follow all the people that she knows and, and build a profile on her the Europeans were very reluctant to share information with the United States on exactly that basis. For example, they thought that we might target labor union members or people with disability or any sorts of other things. And so we had to do a lot of work to assure them that we were actually going to be respectful of European privacy. And then the last point I'll mention is this is still going on. Just last month, The European Court of Justice struck down the latest agreement between the United States and the European Union, something known as the privacy shield, which was a promise from the U.S. government to not use commercial data collected in Europe to target Europeans. The Court of Justice of the European Union said that the American promises were insufficient and struck the agreement down. So all the commercial people are going crazy right now trying to figure out what to
1: do. So tell me, really, is China really listening right now? are they actually stealing our secrets and our data? And have they basically hacked our systems?
3: Pretty much. Four or five years ago, the Chinese breached the Office of Personnel Management, which was the repository for all of the information about people in America who hold top secret and secret clearances. And in order to get those clearances, we have to disclose to the government everything about us, all of our peccadilloes, you know, And the Chinese stole that out from under us. And so they have everything about me personally that I disclose to the U.S. government.
1: Are regular people who are not involved in the government and not involved in negotiations with China, are they at risk here? Or is that really pretty much just noise? Because you're not going to closely monitor individuals who are making coffee at Starbucks, are you? That's correct.
3: There are, however, two ways in which the barista at Starbucks needs to be aware of this. The first is that we've been talking at a governmental level about risks to national security. There's another level that almost every American has experienced, which is the risk of identity theft and cyber crime. On average, 30 to 40% of Americans have had to change a password, change a credit card, had their data stolen from Target or Home Depot, and have experienced some of that. So that's a real risk for everybody. It's not the same existential risk as national security in China, in the Trump or Bush administrations. But what it is, is a risk to them for their money and their personal identity. And that's the first way in which it's relevant. The second way in which it's relevant is really in the aggregate, which is to say that information about Americans as a group or any society as a group allows people to manipulate our social systems in ways that are disruptive of our political discourse in American norm. I mean the classic case of this is the Russian in twenty sixteen who were on both sides of Black Lives Matter. Advocating for Black Lives Matter with some fake accounts and talking to all those people about how their issue wasn't being taken seriously. And then advocating for Blue Lives Matter and saying to all the pro police, pro order people that their issue wasn't being taken seriously. And they spun people up with fake accounts and fake meetings and fake anger that was mostly derived from mining our social media and figuring out what our our weak
0: points are. It's an interesting strategy. Ed? The countries you might think about using would be probably less China, though maybe you'd do it with Hong Kong somewhat, but uh, some a country like Iran, try to use this sort of collected information to figure out who might be on one side, who might be on the other, and then try to disrupt situations in Iran or Venezuela or Nicaragua or other countries that we have more immediate issues with, sort of like Russia did to the United States.
1: Interesting. So we can act incredibly indignant that some other countries are listening to us and taking our data, but we're all doing it, aren't we?
3: We are, though it's at least worth noting that the official... American policy as announced by President Obama and and actually reaffirmed by President Trump publicly is that we will not steal Chinese data for the economic benefit of American companies or anybody's data. Now, you may not believe them, right, which is, yeah, that's an interesting question. But if you do accept that. That puts us in a slightly different category than much of the Chinese efforts where, I mean, I've actually had clients whose intellectual property was taken by China, and six months later, knockoffs were arriving on the boat in Seattle at two-thirds the price, putting them under severe economic pressure.
0: And you should also remember the key word in what Paul said. They affirmed to not use it for economic purpose. That is, they won't steal how TikTok works and give it to Microsoft or something like that. But they didn't say the same thing about for political reasons. And of course, what Russia did was steal it for political reasons. And I presume China does as well. And whenever President Trump gets asked this question about something the Russians do, he immediately replies, well, we're no angels either. We do it too. And he probably knows. So there you got Trump
2: affirming that we do it. There's no question that in the past, and currently, we've tried to influence Russian elections. No one likes to say it. And other countries as well. The CIA did that, and it was considered okay, because it was much less costly in terms of money and human lives to try to influence an election than to do assassination or worse, invasion.
1: Well, so let me ask you a question, Ed, and and actually, Paul as well, with what you just said before. What happened to constitutional checks and balances? How is it that virtually no Republicans seem to be concerned with checks and balances? From my perspective, you've identified the proximate cause, which is that members in Congress see
3: themselves less as advocates for the institution and its role and more as advocates for the party.
1: Don't they realize that if they give the president too much power that, you know, next time it might be a Democratic president? It used to be the case that that was the case. I would say that a lot of this has eroded over a
3: long history of time. One example that I think of is we all thought that having popularly elected senators was a good thing, but actually it turns out making them less independent and more responsive to populism so they no longer stand as a bulwark. And and that's happened over the last hundred years.
1: Not too long ago, you were on CNN and you were talking about the idea of presidential power and how possibly even Bill Barr, our attorney general, believes that the authority of the president is total. You apparently felt very differently about it. Do you want to describe that a little here? The Department of Justice is
3: headed by a political appointee. And that political appointee necessarily gets the right to set priorities for the Department of Justice. The Obama administration can decide it's going to put more resources into enforcing civil rights, anti-gun legislation, and the Bush administration before that decides that it wants to focus on counter-narcotics and counter-terrorism. That's what political people get to do. What they don't get to do is determined that the Department of Justice will essentially serve as the handmaiden for the elected president, enforcing his political desires and moving to support
1: his political agenda for re-election. But how could that not happen? He serves at the pleasure of the president. Well, traditionally, it has not. I
3: mean, to greater or lesser degree, we've had bad attorneys general like John Mitchell, who went to jail for doing that exact thing right? But mostly there's been a strong norm against political interference in the day-to-day operations of the Department of Justice, right? The political appointee asks a question, gets an answer, and that's it. The White House does not call down and say, I want you to start an investigation of Amazon because I hate Jeff Bezos because he owns the Washington Post. The president does not get to pick up the phone and call the attorney general and say, We need an investigation into the origins of the investigation of my campaign so that I have an October surprise to play.
1: But he, he apparently can't call the attorney general if he wants to take a walk over to a local church and hold up a Bible.
3: Exactly. I mean, this is fundamental to the idea of blind justice.
2: What Paul's talking about with the normal operation is he's talking about it's not legal, permissible, or acceptable for the president to interfere with the actual ongoing criminal investigation. And that's what's been happening here. And he has been using it to prosecute his political enemies or try to do so and free his friends with the Michael Flynn investigation and the Roger Stone being two of the most outrageous examples.
0: And a related issue is with the current attorney general, he has an ideological view that goes way back about the power a president should have. To me, it strikes me sort of like a medieval king and that's what his beliefs are and i don't think accords with the historical view of the power that should be as a president historically Congress should have the highest power and the president execute the laws. That's what I think the founders had in mind. But if that's not the way the attorney general believes, and if the attorney general believes that the president has basically the divine right of kings, then that attorney general is more willing to carry out whatever those powers are. Now, just to give an example, the Congress debates and debates and decides how much money it's going to give to build the wall. The president signs it, and then he turns around and issues an executive order taking money appropriated for an entirely different purpose to
1: build his wall. Okay, let's put a pin in that right there. Take another quick break. We'll be back with Paul Rosenzweig in just a minute.
2: Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from KurtCo Media, media for your mind.
1: We're back with Paul Rosenzweig talking Homeland Security and a few other things now. You know, I've I've had discussions with Ed and Jane over the last year during this show. My frustration with the concept of checks and balances, but it seems that they really don't exist. Nobody is exercising them. And as a result, maybe they were badly formed.
3: I would disagree. I mean, for many, many years, Congress was quite effective in oversight. There were eras in which the Speaker of the House was probably more powerful than the President of the United States. One of the things I do on the side is I work part-time at a think tank called the R Street Institute, and we have a project.
2: It's called Make Congress Great Again. (laughs) <laughs> I agree with Bill that I think the concept of checks and balance is a very good idea. Know one of my greatest concerns right now is not the strength of the fourth estate, but the true independence of the judiciary. And while, for example, the Federalist Society, there's nothing wrong in them promoting judges that are good jurists and have a certain attitude towards legislative construction, but I'm really getting worried, particularly with this administration, that they're appointing too many judges that'll just rule the right way regardless of the facts before them. It also means that they're not going to exercise their oversight over the executive branch.
0: I think part of this problem that Paul is talking about and and Jane is underscoring comes from simply partisanship. Instead of having a institutional government, a government which Madison and and Hamilton and Franklin thought they were creating, where institutions would protect their own independence. And Paul adds to that when you made the Senate answerable to the states and the states appointing it rather than elected by the people, that was part of those institutional protections. Now if you change to everything, it's just tied to partisanship. So you have partisan judges, you have partisan senators, and instead of following their institutional biases and norms, defending their own and therefore fighting against each other for power, the Senate fighting with the House and the Senate and the House fighting with the president and the courts sort of being independent umpires. And I like the point Jane made, because you could have judges picked for ideological purpose, like you pick ones that care a lot about abortion rights or right to life. That's one thing. But that's not a partisan issue. If they're just going to follow a partisan line and then the president sets the partisan tone and suddenly senators will just ask how high they're supposed to jump not be like people like you were mentioning Bird of West Virginia or Mitt Romney trying to make an institutional decision or their own judgment, as senators used to do, then if you get everything aligned politically, if you get the judges dominated by one party's judges and both houses of Congress is dominated by the same ones and they obey partisan rules. Well, then you have the recipe for a president having a powers like the president of Turkey now has or the president of Brazil. And that flies in the face of this idea of institutional checks and balances.
1: Well, I can't help but bring up the elephant in the room. Would the safety and security of an election be something that the Department of Homeland Security would look into?
3: Yes, they're spending a fair amount of effort into it now. I would say that the biggest problem for DHS right now in doing that is that there isn't any interest in the safety and security of the election at higher levels. The, the truth of the matter is, is that in government, people focus and the things that the president and the secretary of Homeland Security want done get the most attention. And right now, election security is not on that list. So today, the election security is a major focus of the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, which is a component of DHS. And they're thinking both about information security and combating disinformation and also about the electronic security of the actual machines themselves. They need more money. They need more attention. The people who are doing it are doing their best jobs because they are actually really good civil servants who really care about this. But above a certain level, there's an I don't care. They're focused on protecting Portland or the border or whatever. And President Trump is actually sort of undermining their efforts a bit.
1: In your role as an officer of these security companies, help me understand something. Isn't it more possible that there could be corruption and hacking of electronic voting than even the mail-in?
3: The risks to the
1: electronic systems of voting are real. That's why
3: every person who's looked at like the National Academy of Sciences recommends systems that have paper ballot backups. And they also recommend something called risk-limiting audits. Which is to say, we take a sample of those paper ballots and we compare it to the reported result. And if they align statistically closely enough, we're happy. If the ballots are 56 for Biden and 44 for Trump, and the paper ballots come in 55 45, we're happy. If the paper ballots come in 55 45, Trump beating Biden, we know that something went wrong and somebody played games with it. Everybody believes that that's the case. The other thing that really needs a lot more securing is the pre-election process. The single most vulnerable thing that's out there right now are state registration databases where voting IDs are collected. And if hypothetically the voting database in North Carolina were degraded tomorrow, the election officials in North Carolina simply would not have time to recreate it. No matter how much they wanted to, they wouldn't be able to.
1: Why is it assumed that the potential corruption of mailed-in ballots would be an advantage for the Democrats?
2: I actually am one Democrat who is not so sanguine that mail-in ballots are necessarily a benefit to the Democrats. And that's because the challenge of getting Democrats elected is getting out the vote. When voter turnout is higher, generally Democrats win. Normally getting out the votes is a process of getting a person on a particular day to show up once at an election location. With the mail-in ballots, you have to ensure essentially that three or four things are going to happen. One, if they need to request them, if they're in a state where they need to request it, that they make the request and do it on time. Secondly, you have to ensure that they actually get the ballot. Things do get lost in the mail. Third, you've got to be sure that they are comfortable filling out the ballot. And fourth, you've got to be sure that they mail it. So to me, it's a mixed blessing. Maybe you're getting ballots to more people. But getting those votes in, I think, is a bigger challenge.
1: Paul, how about you? Sounds like you're comfortable with the idea of largely mail-in ballots for this election. Tell us why Trump believes that mail-in ballots will be bad for him.
3: I have been given to understand that he thinks that higher turnout is bad and that the more people vote, the more Democrats will vote like Jane, I actually think the evidence of that is weak and quite possibly wrong. In many places like Florida, where aged people vote, we've seen lots of seniors who like to vote, which probably explains why Trump said mail-in balloting in Florida was great, but not Nevada. So the truth of the matter is is that there are risks in mail-in balloting. And there are risks in in in-person balloting of fraud Both of those, I should add, by the way, pale in comparison to internet balloting, which I am deeply and vigorously against because we can't secure the ballot that way. That's what actual governance is. It's not Trumpian, do what I want because I win that way. It's assessing comparative risk. And by and large, the comparative risk of mail-in balloting are a little less or comparable to in-person balloting. And every piece of evidence we have for the last 30, 40 years says that.
0: So in a risk management scenario, I say you both. Historically mail-in balloting has actually helped the Republican Party because the elderly and foreign troops, soldiers overseas, were the main users of mail-in ballots, and they tend to vote more Republican. Trump, of course, there's a possibility that this year will be different because of a pandemic and other people will be brought out to vote. Now, what he could be doing is not really, deep down, have any question about mail ballots at all. He just may be wanting to sow doubts about the outcome of the election that then he'll use after it happens happens and the easy target for him to do is what's changed about this election? Well it's going to be more mail-in. And therefore if the goal is not a question about mail-in ballots per se, but just simply wanting to sow doubts about the election. And I don't think President Trump is beyond just doing that, then he looks at whatever the change will be. And so he picks on mail-in ballots.
2: How does DHS help with the elections? I know not not the cyber checking for cyber threats, but Since the elections are the province of the state, how would DHS get involved with voting machines, for example?
3: DHS, in coordination with a small commission known as the Elections Administration Commission, the EAC, they do a lot of best practices, so they tell people best ways to secure voting. For example, one of the things that DHS has done in the last four years is talk about the physical security of machines. Four years ago, machines were probably stored in warehouses behind chain link fences with nobody giving a fig's worth to stopping you or me from breaking in and, and messing with them. Today, much better.
0: Historically, we've held elections in very difficult times. In the middle of the Civil War, we were de- delivering ballots to the battlefield. In the middle of the Second World War, states were having to deliver ballots to the middle of the battlefields in the pacific islands and in europe for hundreds of thousands of troops in the middle of a pandemic the much worse pandemic than we're facing today in 1918 we conducted elections that changed that flipped the house and the senate dramatically and undercut the power of the president now all those cases, there were problems. There was a tremendous cut in voting, trying to vote in the middle of a pandemic. Yes, there were problems. There were problems in the Civil War. There were problems in the Revolutionary War. But if you look at what's the most fundamental right in America? Oh, sure freedom of religion, freedom of speech, property rights are all important. But if you ask all the founders, what is the foundation of a Republican government? It's free and fair elections. And we do the best we can. The Constitution mandates them. And if we don't go through with them, well, our constitutional democracy is finished.
1: Well, let's put a pin in it there. Paul Rosenzweig, I hope you will come back and join us again. You've been fabulous, and I really appreciate it. Jane Albrecht, and of course, Ed Larson, you round out our group wonderfully. And Paul, tell our listeners how they can follow you if they want to keep up with your philosophies.
3: I'm on Twitter, at Rosenzweigp. R O S E N Z W E I G. I sometimes write at the Lawfare blog, which is a blog about national security and homeland security law and policy. And I also write at the R Street Institute, where most of my media appearances will eventually be clipped and put up. And I'm delighted to have been here. Thank you for having me. It was a really great and fun conversation.
1: Absolutely. Well, this is politics. Meet me in the middle. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next week. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends, and please leave a comment. And yes, we'd of course appreciate it if you gave us a five-star rating. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This episode was produced and edited by A.J. Mosley and Mike Thomas, and it was audio mastered by Michael Kennedy. The theme music for Politics Meet Me in the Middle was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. We'll
0: be okay. from Kirko Media Media for your mind